Hello and welcome to Hoops Hour, hosted by Hoops Hour. This is a basketball podcast show, everything in between. This is episode six. It's Thursday, February 1st. Happy Black History Month. Let's get into it. I'm very excited. Got a good episode on uh, on deck for everyone here uh, today. Um, quick little editorial correction. You know, gotta gotta get into my journalist bag and uh, and get in front of this one and uh, really own own up and take accountability. Um, I said last episode that Carl uh, Anthony Towns 44 uh, points in his first half of his 62 uh, point game. Uh, was the highest scoring first half ever in NBA history. I thought I had seen that somewhere. It's not. Um, that record is shared by David Thompson and George Gervin, who both put up 53 points in the first half. Um, and the overall half point record is uh, is Wilt, Wilt Chamberlain. He had 59 points in the second half of his 100-point game. Um, so, yeah, just wanted, to, just wanted to put that out there real quick. Um Anyways, got a couple things to talk about here and a, a fun little, um, not a game really, but just thing to do at the end as the final segment. And uh, yeah, let's, let's without any further dilly-dallying, let's, uh, let's just get into it. So, um, you know, Embiid's, Embiid's 71 was pretty crazy, right? It would be even wilder if a couple days later... Jesus Christ. If a couple days later, Luka Doncic went and scored 73, right? That'd be pretty wild. Yeah, it was. Uh, Watch that. It was insane. Uh, So yeah, Luka Doncic, 73 points. And the funny thing is, is that one really could have been the 81 breaker. Uh, That one, that game really could have been the one where uh, Kobe's 81 which is kind of like ostensibly seen as the record because I mean I just mentioned Wilt's 100 point game but like but like um and so so the the kind of the bar to reach is really that Kobe 81 um and the fact that he also did it in like a slower era is like really just crazy anyways not not entirely the point that game was pretty wild Luca was just off one um could have been a 80 90 point game uh if the Hawks didn't just start full court pressing every possession from like halfway through the third on which is really funny to me because like I get it you once a guy reaches a certain point you're like all right no more like this is like we're not getting embarrassed we're not letting you drop 70 80 whatever it is on our heads we don't care if we lose like you're just you're not scoring all right and that's exactly what they did but it does feel a little arbitrary because it's like Listen, man, I've already got, like, 68. You might as well let me keep going. Like, you've already been embarrassed. I've already just dropped 68 on your head. What's what's really the difference, right? Um, But he – so the final stat line was 73 points, 10 rebounds, 7 assists on 91.2% true shooting. It's the most efficient 70-point game ever, which is also a really humorous, like, superlative to add on it. There's already – there's only – this is the tenth seventy point uh, uh, person, rather person to get seventy points uh, to to add on like an extra. But this one's the most efficient. It's pretty funny. I don't think anybody's really caring about their efficiency once they get to seventy points. But as that maybe becomes a bit more 
frequent, regular, um, which it's not. I mean, 70 is crazy regardless, but uh, maybe maybe people start caring about your efficiency on your ridiculous, you know, 70, 80-point games. Um, anyways, Devin Booker had 62, I think, the same night. So we really did a duplicate evening of uh, Joel Embiid 70 and Carl Anthony Towns 60 on the same night. And we had an uh, uh, arguably even crazier one this time, although... I don't know. You can decide which uh, which seventy point performance you like more, and which uh, sixty point performance you like more. Also, I'm pretty sure the Suns lost that game, so it's just very funny. A lot of coincidences going on, but those were some crazy performances that have happened in the past week. Those were on uh, on the 26th, which was Saturday, Friday, Friday. So it was like the evening after I had filmed that uh, the last episode. But yeah. Next piece of exciting news is the Knicks. The Knicks are the third seed. I can't believe I'm saying that. Um, they've just been, I mean, the, the Knicks have been on such an incredible run, eight wins in a row, um, and really taking advantage specifically of uh, Philly, who have been in a bit of a dive right now. Um, nothing crazy, but they just haven't lost, or they've they've lost the past like three or four. Um, so we're just kind of sliding our way up, and we're, we're only one game out of the second seed, and... <laughs> I smell it. I can smell it. I think we're getting close. So, uh, you know, all we need is to, to, you know, and the Bucks have lost two in a row. So, you know, keep that up. Keep that up, Milwaukee. You know, entering the Doc Rivers era with two fat, stinky losses. Um, side note, they played the uh, they played the Trailblazers last night in uh, Dame's return to Portland. And that was a, that was a really fun game down the stretch. Um uh, Milwaukee had brought it all the way back to like a one possession game at one point. Um, There's a couple of crazy possessions. Uh, Giannis blocked Aiton, so I'm sure any Suns fans watching got a bit of like a whiplash from that, especially because it immediately resulted in like a transition play. It was very much like the uh, like the finals uh, in 2021. But anyways, not the point. It was a fun game. But Knicks fans, we have learned a painful uh, karmic lesson in the law of equivalent exchange because in return for the three seed, uh, for now at least, uh, Julius Randle is injured, unfortunately. He dislocated his shoulder in a win against the Miami Heat on Saturday. Uh, doctors do seem pretty optimistic that uh, he should be out weeks and not months, which is really good because it looked pretty bad when it had happened. Um, but considering we've got the uh, uh, All-Star break coming up soon, and that's about 10 days off, this is kind of like a best-case scenario for him to not really like lose games, uh, but you know, be able to rest up a bit. And uh, speaking of the All-Star weekend, we've got a new event coming, which is uh, Steph Curry versus Sabrina Ionascu. This should be a good one. Uh, it's a three-point shootout. We were talking about like the uh, kind of the premier marksman of the WNBA and the NBA, respectively. Uh, Sabrina, if you don't know, has the just across-the-board three-point contest record uh, with 37 points, going 25 of 27 shots. I think that was just this past uh, WNBA season. Um, so this should be a pretty fun one. Always love a good shootout and. Uh, uh, and she said that she was supposed to originally be um, Steph, NBA ball, NBA line, Sabrina, WNBA ball, WNBA line. But she said, fuck that. I'm shooting from the NBA line. Let's get it. So um, that should be fun and a cool little cool little event to, to add. And also in, in 
addition to the fact that the uh, All-Star games going back to East versus West, hopefully this is a good All-Star uh, uh, All-Star weekend and the events feel a bit more rejuvenated. People people want to shit on the dunk contest from last year, even though it was the best one we've had in like three, four seasons. Bro, Matt McClung held that down. Anyways, very, very far off topic. And that brings us into our first segment, which is uh, in line, in vain with uh, those big scoring outbursts that I was just talking about. Um, It's really reignited uh, or I mean, the conversation never really goes away in this NBA, but really it threw some some fire or some coal onto the fire of the discourse around has offense gone too far? You know, we've got Embiid's 71-point game, Luka's 73-point game. Uh, You add in Damian Lillard and Donovan Mitchell's 71-point games, respectively, from last season. And that's four out of the ten players in NBA history to ever reach 70 points. That's it's been done in the past two seasons. Um, and like most recently, just what we've had, we've had two 70 point games and two 60 pieces within a week of each other. That's that that's crazy. I'm not, you know, there, there's no way around that. That's pretty wild. Additionally, the top six offenses this season are all the highest scoring offenses of all time. In fact, you can go further back. The top 25 offensive ratings by a team have all come between the 2021 and 2020, uh, or the 2020 and 2021 season, and now all top 25 all come within the past like three seasons. So, has offense gone too far? You know, this is really a topic that it feels like everyone's got an opinion on, and I haven't really brought it up in any uh, video, in any episodes of this. Um, even though it gets brought up, as I said, basically every time someone goes for like 45 plus, you know, you'll immediately see it all over the timelines. Oh, defense is cooked. Nobody plays defense. 50's the new 30. This product's ruined. Nobody wants to watch this garbage, et cetera, et cetera, right? And it feels like despite very, you know, maybe valid uh, complaints or concerns about the game, uh, it it feels like most people cite half-truths in their opinions and their arguments and why as to why we're seeing offense explode like this but i sort of rarely ever hear someone emphasize the the whole truth at least how i see it and uh and kind of just talk about everything with some context so while i'm not trying to position myself as some you know guiding light or or beacon of facts and logic uh i do think like a lot of things that this is uh it's a bit of everything uh, a bit of a lot of the things people are saying and so i'm going to try to give my my uh my thoughts on the entire discourse of uh has offense gone too far so my argument really summed up is Look, there's unreal offensive talent in today's league. Players with skill sets we haven't, we we just haven't seen, you know. And to use the two most recent cases as examples, Luka Doncic is a six-seven, two hundred and forty-pound guard that can score at all three levels and is a generational playmaker and passer. And Embiid, Joel Embiid, is a seven-foot, almost. 300 pound center that's got handles and can score from anywhere on the court all right dog this shit ain't normal like any era any time this is an anomaly this is crazy we haven't seen this before it's not been common and if there was a player that these modern stars are to be compared to from the past 10 out of 10 times 100 percent, that player was ahead of their time right so 
that's one thing that should be established. Like the talent is at an all-time high, but besides just that, there, there's a lot more to it. Obviously, you know, it's it's fair to acknowledge that the NBA obviously wants players to be scoring. It wants a lot of points. It equals ratings and money, and people got their eyes on the league because, oh, this person scored 35 in the past, you know, six games or whatever. They're going crazy. It's 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 something worth watching. There's theories about Wilt's 100-point game and that it was basically just a manufactured marketing ploy. If if we had a game that was 100 points and nobody saw it, well, that means you just got to come see it then, right? So there's very clearly a, uh, or it's just obvious that there would be an external uh, motivation to obviously favor, quote unquote favor, because you don't want to just throw around that word too loftily, but uh, to favor offense. You know, you want to see players score a lot of points, no duh. Um, but it's, it's not just a, a star, that is creating these really high scoring 138 to 129 uh point games right it's it's also the fact that lineups now have three four role players that can all shoot pass or drive or all three all right but if you go back 20 plus years ago teams maybe had one or two of those guys um that could do all three that is and then very specific role men around them and instantly that makes defense's job way harder okay when you've got it when, when there's genuinely dudes out there that you have to worry about now and not just the star you can either double the star who is as we've we've already established is likely a player that's you know never been really seen in nba history and is uh, of an unreal talent you can either try to double them and allow wide open threes or good just good shots in general um for the rest of the team which as we've now established also are good shooters or you can allow that star player to iso and just get as many good looks as they want and by the way dudes are way more efficient now than they used to be so that's not really something you're going to want to live with so that's a thing. And then also there's an obvious three-point explosion. Every basketball fan knows that the game changed when Steph Curry and the Warriors really established a dynasty and saw just so much success. It, it revolutionized offense and uh, made they showed that you could really have a dominant winning formula by making three-point shots a, a focal point of the offense. Um, but it took a little while before teams caught up you know not every team had a dude that could shoot 40 percent from three on eight attempts yet that didn't just happen the second Steph Curry really you know bursted on the scene in like a 2013 2014 take some time afterwards everything's sort of like a trickle uh, of of what happens you know maybe a few years before it takes a while for things to catch up um you know, if we look at the uh, 20 years ago to the 2003-2004 season, most teams attempted anywhere from 12 to 23s a game with the Supersonics, the Seattle Supersonics, uh, looking like standouts, looking like a, a modern-day Warriors team, shooting 23.6 attempts. Um, but now, today, in 2024, most teams take 35 to 43s, the lowest still take 30 plus threes a game so that's a very big difference okay a decade removed from that initial boom it's not just that players are more comfortable taking these shots there's a league-wide consensus a mathematical revelation if you will into the benefit 
of generating open quality looks from three. Think about it this way. If I hit 33% of my threes, that's equivalent to one point possession. If I have three attempts to take a three, I only hit one of them. Well, that's still one point per possession. If I shoot 50% from, let's say, the mid-range, the mid-range pull-up, that's also equivalent to fifty uh, to one point per possession. Excuse me. Uh, and if you look around the league at who's doing those things, you'll find it's a lot easier to shoot 33% from three than it is to shoot 50% from mid-range. Um, and not that, you know, mid-range jump shots are completely gone, obviously, but it's really on- only the absolute most elite mid-range shooters can really mathematically even afford to leave that in their shot diet if that makes sense you really have to be able to hit them at an elite rate because it's just it's just way easier to be like a semi-decent three-point shooter that just generates over a, a course of a whole game way more points so it's 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 a better bang for your buck you know if if you want to put it that way um another thing is that dude's uh, can actually score now. It's not just shooting. You know, a lot of them can put the ball on the on the ground and can uh, can really get to the basket. Guys, and and this is really evident, and this is really where I bring up like the team stuff again because guys in the '90s and in the '80s, even further back, they averaged 30 points. Right? We had Rick Barry in the '60s or '70s um, putting up 35. MJ in his third season, I think, averaged 37. Guys scored a lot of points back then, but their teams scored like 20-ish points or more less than they do now. So if the guys at the top of the league today aren't like relative to that averaging 35, 45, 50 points accordingly, they're averaging about the same, if not like a little bit more. You know, where are those extra points coming from? It's coming from the guys on the court who are also now capable of getting 20 points on any given night. There's just so much more talent, so, so much more scoring capability from the roster down one through five. It's it's seen as like a um, it's it's widely seen as like a, a detriment to have a player on the court who's just really not much of a shooter or isn't much of a scorer, especially like I mean. You you probably will not get playing time in the playoffs in today's league if you're just, like, not a scorer. Like, a Jared Vanderbilt on the Lakers, great defender. If you put him, uh, you know, 30 years back, the dude's, like, a, a, a Hall of Famer, probably. But nowadays, it's just like, eh, yeah, buddy, okay, everybody needs to play defense, whatever. You need to be able to shoot. It's too much of a liability. So, in line with that, while the NBA is a star-driven league, absolutely, and also stars' usage rates have steadily increased over the eras, over the decades, um, something that can obviously um, also contribute to huge scoring outbursts. If I'm going to have the ball in my hand all game, likely one of these games I will go off and score a bunch. Um, but besides just that, there's infinitely more positional versatility in today's game. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, positions and roles are way less rigid than they used to be, and players are expected to do a lot more, be all over the floor. And that stuff leads to the fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh man down the line, ending up getting some good looks throughout a game to score. So, you add that in with there also being, like, basically more possessions per game than ever before, outside of the 60s, where, 
I mean, the dudes were just jacking up shots. The pace was ridiculous back then, and I'm sure Wilt Chamberlain was, like, single-handedly skewing those numbers. But point being, imagine, like, the 60s pace, but instead of all the players being stiff, like, 6'3 white dudes, it's a bunch of light-skinned super athletes with really long-ass arms and a mean height of, like, 6'6", 6'7". Way more athleticism, way more talent uh, in-game, and then just... I mean, we're, we're talking about, like, super specimens here at this point, too. They can get to the rim. They can score. Um, and also, the last thing about offense um, before kind of seeing if defense is cooked uh, is it's not just, like, individual talents and players that have soared. There's also way more creativity and inventiveness into the offensive schemes we see. I know it can often feel like when you're watching an NBA game, uh, the entire offensive scheme is just star player isos, and that either results in a bucket, uh, free throws, or a kick out to an open shooter. And first off, if that is so, I promise you that analytics have deemed that the most effective way to score so that's sort of like a don't hate the player hate the game type of thing um you shouldn't you know go oh i hate this player because all he does is that man that was probably in the playbook all right the the playbook said luca cook all right um but it's it's not just that there's also so many different sets being run shooters all over the floor penetrators cutting this way that way all the additional space and shooting that opens up the floor just enables so many different actions to be ran, um, and that's that's something to consider. It's not just stars chucking up shots plus more reliable shooters around. It's a little bit more complicated than that. Sorry, I can already feel it. I've got to preserve the, uh, the vocal cords. <clears throat> With all this being said, it's not just that defense is lazy, per se. I know we all see the clips on the timeline, um, especially in games like uh, like where someone goes off for like 50-plus points, and then someone will clip out a random possession where a dude's looking like a traffic cone, not moving. But it's not just that de- or it's not that defense is, is lazy, per se. It's just it's a lot fucking harder to guard such talented players when most of the team is also scoring threat in some capacity. You know, and so it's a lot of these things working simultaneously that have made offense explode. And at the same time they're making offense explode, they're making defense harder. You know, way more spacing obviously means a lot more opportunity to get into isolation, to kick out. There's more, there's just more space to deal with, to score. That also means that there's way more ground to cover as a defender, to constantly move around. And that infinite more uh, positional versatility, that also applies to defense. Defenses aren't just you know, stay in front of your man, you're, you're going all over, you're running zones, you're doing all these different things. It's very, very taxing over the course of a game. Um, you know, it's not just like, okay, I just got to make sure my man doesn't get by me kind of thing anymore. You know, it's, you can ask like NBA players, they'll talk about it. Like defense becomes so much easier when they're not like specifically, um, man-to-man guarding someone who is a shooting threat because they can sag off, they can roam a bit, they can uh, look where they can maybe uh, disrupt like passing lanes and things like that. Um, so if you make those players shooters, you've got to cover them. you got to follow them all the way around, chase them around screens and pin downs and all these things. That's very exhausting. It makes defense harder. Um, so yeah, 
while I'm doing all this uh, white knighting uh, in in defense of offense, uh, there are some things that I would like to see changed. All right, we've acknowledged we we get that um, that offense is crazy. It's not just defense being bad anymore, or, or them not trying. It's just a lot harder. Um, but there are some things that I would like to see changed. One of those uh, is is not rewarding foul baiting, and that's really when it's evident that the player is looking to create contact without a serious attempt at scoring. That's a very controversial thing when uh, when on the replay you can really see the player kind of like lean into it. Look, if they know that that contact's coming but they were already putting up that shot, that's one thing. But it's really when they, they see someone's like closing in and they're just like, oh, free throws. Ooh. And then they just, like, chuck something up after they've, like, engaged in that contact. I don't really like that. And as I said, so it either comes as, like, a player, uh, like, uh, closing in or if they're driving, maybe they, like, put down their shoulder to kind of initiate contact. Um, this stuff is already technically, like, not allowed but and, and is considered, like, an offensive foul. But, you know, a wink, wink, we kind of know what that all means. I would really like to see um, officials really tighten up that and not reward anything that looks like a player going out of their way to try to initiate contact. And that sort of brings up the uh, the foul merchant discourse, which is its own kind of conversation. And honestly, I think it's mostly overblown. We, we should really say that it's mostly overblown. Granted, I will admit Joel Embiid is currently averaging, I'm pretty sure, the most free throws ever. And that's something to consider, but he's a super freak that, as I said, can basically do everything from everywhere on the court. So it's like, you kind of have to foul him, right? Um, but across the board, there isn't really a substantial difference. Um, and also weak calls have made, uh, have always been made, you know, they, there's always been really soft calls, uh, even in more like physical eras, uh, superstars, um, they, they get a whistle sometimes, you know, superstars get a superstar whistle and it's kind of always been that way. Um, and that's whether it's the superstar just getting superstar treatment or tricks that they, you know, cleverly know how to like manipulate defenses and rules to like, um, get them to initiate like even the slightest amount of contact. And they're able to like kind of milk that, um, this stuff has been around. And uh, another rule I'd like to see changed, modified, is the defensive three-second uh, rule, which is basically when a player is standing inside that 16-foot key area or, like, basically the paint um, and isn't actively guarding anyone for three full seconds. If a dude's just chilling in the paint, not really doing anything, Darvin Ham, hands in pocket, um, that's going to be called a defensive three-second rule, and that's a turnover. We're going the other way. Um, and so this obviously means that defenders can't just camp in the paint and, you know, just occupy it the whole game, wait for someone to, to try them, basically. Um, they have to get out of the way or go actually guard someone. And that opens up driving lanes. It, you know, it spaces the floor a lot more. And that definitely favors the offense for sure. I'm not going to lie. I give, as I said, that gives them more space, um, et cetera. And so a good amount of people want this rule like completely gone, um, like it is particularly in uh, FIBA competitions. Um, and I get it. I get it. But I don't want paint campers. You know, I don't want I think it would be a little bit excessive, but in like the opposite direction, I feel like it would be 
overcorrecting if we were to just completely get rid of the three uh, the three second defensive rule. Um, because I don't I don't want teams being able to have like a legitimate tactic of okay, dude who's seven one just 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 sit by the rim. Just sit by the rim. Like, I think there's a middle ground we can reach. Um, so I'd like to maybe see it change to, like, a defensive six or seven second rule so that defenses are allowed to occupy that space around the rim for a bit longer and a bit more frequently. But it also doesn't let them just kind of, like, you know, pitch a tent and, and chill there um, around the basket. I think, again, that would be a little excessive. So a defensive, like, six or seven second rule. And then the only other piece of officiating that I'd like to see changed is touch fouls, um, which is like calls on minimal, unsubstantial contact. Um, I know they've always existed or at least have as well in physical eras. So it's not like this is like a new problem, but they do tend to go away historically in the playoffs and refs will allow a lot more incidental, non-consequential contacts throughout the course of a game. Um, and I think a lot of people would just be happier if that was a consistent thing throughout the regular season as well. Um, because it feels like it really, it's a game to game basis kind of thing. Um, it's like within the first few minutes, the first like one or two calls sort of set the tone for the rest of the night and teams or players will know like, Oh, okay. You know, tonight's a night where, uh, you know, every little thing's going to get called. We have to adjust to that. Or, oh, tonight's a night where they're going to let us play a little bit more physical. We can do that. Um, and I just, I wish teams didn't really have to cope with that being such a drastic, like, game-to-game different thing. Um, and there was just, hey, this is the amount of contact you're, like, allowed. And we're truly going to call it like that across the board. And I know refing's hard. It's a human thing. But... Still, it really feels like on a to a drastic degree. Some games are just way more physical, and some games, I mean, the whistle's getting blown every ten seconds. It feels like. So I would like some uh, some more consistency in that uh, in that regard. Um, and I want to emphasize that those kind of weak touch fouls and whatnot, there is usually genuinely contact. So it's not like a flop or a phantom call, like a lot of people think. I mean, they did add flopping. Uh, they did add a flopping like penalty into the game now where you can get fined or an offensive foul if it's not caught during the game. Um, I think it's been used like two times so far. Um, so it's it's not that we just have like a bunch of like floppers in the league. It certainly happens, but most of the times it's minimal contact that the player then feels and exaggerates to kind of guarantee that they'll get the call. Still annoying. I totally understand if you, if that's you know what your perspective is on that, but I do think it's fair to say that that is different than someone just like outright flopping. So I want to get rid of even someone uh, exaggerating minimal contact by just making it so that there has to be more substantial contact before a whistle is even thought about being blown. Hey yo. Um, and so the last thought that I had on uh, this whole thing is that listen. Offense has been exploding over the past decade plus-ish, you know, and and at a really high rate. Um, But this is probably what we're experiencing, like, in the now is probably just an awkward period in between where offense has exploded and defense hasn't quite caught up yet. You know, I feel like even if things were left as they are, no rule changes were made. Schemes and game plans will eventually be devised to truly slow down offense again. 
you know, it's that's just sort of the nature of things. Defense always comes second. It's a it's a reactionary thing in response to offense. So this is kind of in line with that. Offense kind of explodes and then defense learns to adjust. So I'm sure that even if no rule changes were made, uh, eventually defenses would uh, learn to cope in a way. Um, and also just enjoy the game kind of, you know, these games have some perspective whenever someone goes for 60 points or whatever, like these games still are an anomaly. I know it can feel like it happens all the time, uh, especially on social media where things maybe stay, uh, stay on the timeline for longer. So you think it's maybe happening more than it is or whatever, but have some perspective, you know, take a step back, realize that Dudes aren't actually scoring 60 every other day or something like that. Not yet, at least. Um, but yeah, so that's my, uh, those are my thoughts on has offense gone too far? No. All right, so this is a team I haven't really talked about at like all throughout this season, and that's the Miami Heat. Um, and for a, a few different reasons, mainly it's because it feels like what I'm getting from the Heat in terms of like a product during the regular season usually is very much the same thing. It's like a safe bet kind of thing. So I feel less inclined to like tune in and see what's going on there. I assume I know what I'm going to get from the Miami Heat come like gearing up towards the end of the season and into the postseason. So I'm just like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm less, less interested in, in, uh, really developing like new opinions on it, I guess, which is definitely on me, but, um, you know, they have some precedent in that department. So it's not like I just did that out of nowhere. Um, but there are a few things that have happened, uh, at the, in the Miami heat, uh, land that are worth, uh, talking about and tuning in. And, uh, yeah. So the Miami heat, I think last night even snapped their seven game losing streak, but they were on a seven game losing streak. Um, and they also, and I should have mentioned this last episode because in like the, the top of the episode, and I was mentioning a couple of the trades, uh, Terry Rozier has been traded from the, uh, Charlotte Hornets to the Miami heat in exchange for Kyle fat booty Lowry. Um, and I didn't mention that, so sorry, but we're going to get into that. And, um, Yeah. About the losing streak, I don't really have anything to say about it, particularly one, because I was not watching the majority of the game, uh, of the games in which they were, uh, losing, um, and the majority of their games this season anyways. Um, and also like anyone can go on a losing streak, you know, I don't, even if it, even if this is, uh, a down year for Miami and it turns out, um, you know, one losing streak doesn't, uh, accurately represent, you know, the heat as a whole or whatever. So I'm going to start off with this trade stuff and uh, talk about that. So, Terry Rozier on the Heat is a Miami Heat. Uh, that definitely adds a, a little offensive boost for sure um, to a team that definitely, uh, you know, could use that. Their their offense has been uh, less than moving uh, over the course of this season so far. Um, they have not been scoring with the best of them, you could say. Um, but there is a bit of redundancy between Terry Rozier and Tyler Hero. They're kind of the same players, you know. They're, they're score-first guards that are best with the ball in their hands. Um, and I think a lot of people are kind of confused on how the Heat are going to make this one work, why they made this kind of trade. Um, it did kind of seem like it was out of nowhere. Maybe Miami Heat fans can uh, correct me if they had... 
uh, closer ears and sources on the ground, and there was a little bit more whisperings about trading for Terry Rozier. But uh, it did sort of, I, I did sort of raise a brow and go like, hmm, when I heard this trade happen. Um, but they, I think people are also a little bit confused because they're starting both of them right now. Um, currently, Miami Heat is dealing with some injuries and whatnot, but going forward, you know, is is it going to work with both of them starting? Uh, I personally think probably not. Um, so I, I, I think that it's evident that it's not really going to work because in the, uh, few handful of games whatever it's been since the uh Tyler uh or the Terry Rozier trade I think it's been like four maybe five games um Tyler Hero has not had the ball as much in his hand he's running a season low amount of pick and rolls a game um and that's all while Terry Rozier is still adjusting and not exactly having like an immediate great winning impact so just in general it hasn't looked great and it's definitely probably been a decent reason to why that losing streak got up to seven uh, in the first place. So, what do I think? I think that uh, Hero should be benched for Duncan Robinson, who's having a much better year after last season, where he was shooting like 30% from three or something, just abysmal. He was averaging like half of the points he usually does. Um, I think there's a lot to say for like players' confidence and it completely sinking because I believe that had to do with it. But And granted, he missed like half of last season. But regardless, Duncan Robinson having a much better season this year. And also, he's just an off-ball player. He's someone who can thrive as a catch-and-shoot guy. Um, and you want to minimize that overlap and make sure that both players, that being Tyler Hero and Terry Rozier, are both getting utilized best and having as, as much impact uh, positively as possible. Um, so Terry Rozier point guard, and then your shooting guard can be the catch and shoot dude. Who's six, seven shooting 40% from three, whatever. That's not bad. And then six man of the year, Tyler hero. Who's also, by the way, shooting like 40% from three. He's actually having quite a decent year. Um, he can lead the second unit and he doesn't really have to compromise his play style as much. Um, it's, it's great when you can have someone who's, um, like a, a decent, like a solid, true point guard running your bench unit, um, like a Tyler Hero. He's already won the Sixth Man of the Year award. I didn't just say that, um, but to to make sure that your offense basically doesn't fall off a cliff when your starters are resting, when you can have that one really solid point guard lead that bench unit. Um, that's I think like a really uh, uh, staple of like a true competitive, like deep playoff team. So, um, and another reason why I don't think the Rogier hero backcourt would work is it's just quite defensively vulnerable, uh, especially in the playoffs. You know, Terry Rogier, I love him. He's a dog. He's a fun guy to watch on the uh, Charlotte Hornets, but uh, he is quite undersized and exploitable. Um, and then, you know, it's it's not like I would really call Duncan Robinson some elite perimeter defender, but he is bigger and has better instincts than Tyler Hero, someone who has been a minus defender mostly throughout his career. So I think this is the way to go, a Rozier and Robinson uh, a backcourt with Hero leading the bench. Sorry, Tyler Hero. You know, sometimes a guy just ends up being the odd one out in a trade um, that, you know, one player ends up being sort of disproportionately affected by the way, uh, by the play style of someone that, you know, the team brings on. Um, But they got an offensive oriented guard, you know, it was was kind of bound to happen. Even if the Heat were to have gotten Damian Lillard over the summer, um, this probably would have happened anyway. Um, So, yeah. 
back to the Heat's kind of season as a whole, I think the big question, at least for me, as someone who hasn't been uh, watching them very closely, is like, are the Heat just trolling? You know, I don't, again, I don't want to judge uh, specifically any of the games following like a big trade, because uh, there's always an adjustment period, but the Heat have been painfully mediocre, like all season long. And it feels like they're always underwhelming in the regular season. They were the first seed in 2022, but they were the fifth seed in 2020, the sixth seed in 2021, the eighth seed, obviously, in 2023, and this season, they're the seventh seed. So, you know, it's like, are they just sort of in a hyperbaric time chamber charging up for uh, the playoffs? Are they just powering up or are they really just not a team that should be considered one of the very best in their conference anymore? Right now, the Heat have the 22nd uh, best offense and the 13th best defensive rating. Um, And that's not too dissimilar to last season where they had the 25th offense and the 9th defense. But, uh, you know, here's the thing. Miami got hot during the playoffs. All right, they went from the fourth worst three-point shooting team during the regular season to the very best three-point shooting team in the entire playoffs. And they played the most games out of any team, 23 to the next, which was Boston's 20. And I'm not calling Miami's run last year a fluke. I'm not calling it that. But I am calling it hard to replicate. Hard to just flip that switch and suddenly you're nuclear from three and one of the better offenses in the league. Especially as it pertains to their role players and how much they were able to just get out of them from that run. I mean, Caleb Martin has been solid this season and as always, I think he's he's a really good underrated role player. But are you really going to get potential Eastern Conference Finals MVP Caleb Martin this time around? If you remember those jokes Caleb Martin had like a ridiculous like last two ish plus games of the Eastern Conference Finals and uh, and really had a c- cemented like a at least a half case for him to get the Eastern Conference Finals MVP. But there's that guy. There's Kevin Love, who's just getting older and older. There's Jaime Hawkins Jr., who. I actually don't have anything negative to say about, and I think he will be good in the playoffs. He's one of those guys who's like shows up ready um, in the league because he was a three or four year college dude, so he's really kind of ready to contribute to a, um, a a winning team. But regardless, he is a rookie and will likely need time to adjust, and will maybe not look as good in the in the playoffs at least like this specific year, um, and. I think that would affect the Heat a lot because Jaime Hawkins Jr. has been pretty impactful for them, at least so far in the regular season. Um, and then they added Josh Richardson over the summer, who can maybe make up for some of that offensive spark that he got from like a Gabe Vincent and Max Struess, who are both now gone. Um, I don't know. You know, they just they got a lot out of a little during the playoffs. Um, I will say this season, Bam Adebayo uh, is probably having the the best season of his career, playing the best basketball of his career. Um, and while I think Jimmy Butler is, or not while I think, but while Jimmy Butler is getting older and I think we need to be wary of him being able to just suddenly go super sane and turn into one of the top 10, top five players in the league when during the playoffs, he should probably be good for another like one or two of those. It's a very dramatic switch that he 
flips to go from like a 21 point per game guy to to a 29 point per game guy dropping dropping 50 on the bucks and things like that and i think the the heat should be more weary than not that they can't just like infinitely rely on that one ever but as i said he should probably have one or two more of those left in his sleeve um so you know in short looking at the heat i think this team's just getting a bit stale you know i think it's in some serious need of refreshing obviously they tried over the off season to, um, in getting Damian or with getting Damian Lillard didn't try hard enough if you ask me I think Pat Riley was being an absolute dope about that but um, I'm, I'm just not sure any of the moves they made after that point have really pushed them past where they were last season which as I said you know the last season is they were they were doing a lot with a, a little so even if you ran it back with exactly the team they had last season I'm not sure it happens the same way you know um, I think, and I think every team above them currently in the Eastern Conference standings, outside of the Pacers and maybe Cavs, would beat them. You know, I know the Heat made the finals, but Giannis missed two and a half games in the first round and wasn't the same when he came back. The Knicks were hobbled in the second round and have gotten much better since, as I will tell you. Um, and the Celtics were, they were trolling. You want to talk about a team that was trolling, the Celtics were trolling that series. And if you simmed it back 10 times, Boston wins six or seven of it. I stand by that. I said it before. Uh, Boston only beat themselves. Boston have the, I think, far and away, the most loaded roster. The most diabolically constructed to not let an opponent breathe roster in the Celtics. Especially now. But they were probably the best on-paper roster um, last season too, but they're being led by a dude who likes to troll and is still only like 24, that being Jason Tatum. So regardless, um, I'd not, to, and that's not to say that they got lucky in any of these series. You still have to show up. You still have to work. You still have to put up those shots and they still have to go in. It's not like this stuff just like happens and you wave a, a magical wand and, or, or Eric Spolsha's in the back of the Miami, uh, arena doing like you know, dark magic chance to uh, enhance the attributes of all his players. Like, they still did that. The Heat's run was incredible, but I don't know how replicatable it is, which is probably what makes it incredible, you know? If the Heat could just run that back, maybe it wasn't that special, but I think it was, and for that, it would be really hard to do that again. Um, so I don't really think the Heat have done enough to stay super competitive in an Eastern Conference where... A lot of their peers have gotten significantly better, have really buffed themselves up. And, you know, the Heat, they're, I, I I know that they will always be one of those teams that, you know, shows up to the playoffs better than they were probably. They'll always have tricks up their sleeves and, and gears left to kind of go into when the playoffs come. But as everyone gets better and better, like, you're going to need to at least get a little better too. I'm not sure they did. So those are really my thoughts on the Heat. I think we'll have a much better idea of what this team will look like in the playoffs after they're like 25-plus-ish games removed from the Terry Rozier trade and have had time to sort of calibrate him into the system and see how that works. Also, when they get Duncan Robinson back, because I'm pretty sure he's injured, maybe start running that uh, that, that two-man instead and have Hero on the bench, see how that goes. Um, and, and we'll see as they sort of, sort of start ramping up for the playoffs or for the play-ins as that's where they are currently. And 
will likely probably remain. I don't see the Heat really jumping up beyond like a sixth seed um, before the end. So, um, yeah, we'll 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 we'll, we'll touch back. Uh, we'll touch base with the Heat um, closer towards the end of the season. But for right now, they're just they're not moving me. All right, and time for the segment that I've been looking forward to this one for a while. Hopefully, this is a good bit of fun. Um, I was gonna do this in a as like a bonus like segment um, that I was gonna upload around like New Year's, um, but I did not get time to record it before I ended up going uh, on vacation for a bit. And I wasn't gonna put it in the first episode coming back because it is a decently chunky thing. And if you know how long last episode was, uh, we didn't need any more additional things for me to yap about. But I think it'll be fun to add in here. And you know, we're a little, we are uh, undeniably past the halfway point uh, in the season. But regardless, this is the Hoops Hour Midseason Award Show. So we'll do this again when it comes down to the end of the season. These are my personal picks. I mean, I'm gonna I'm gonna acknowledge who I think will likely win it, uh, like in in reality. But then if I have a a pick that's different than that, I'll uh, differentiate those. But this should be fun. Before we get into that. We're gonna have a little unfun real quick, and and talk about all this all this discourse around the 65 game minimum for eligibility for end of year awards, uh, and and all the drama and all the stuff people are talking about right now, um, because I completely understand the anger uh, around the the rule, especially as it pertains to fan favorites like a Kyrie Irving who's already disqualified from all NBA honors from any end of year awards, having missed. 18 20 games already i think he's missed 20 games um um and then Embiid, joel Embiid, who's obviously having the season he's having um but is really close to disqualifying um and is trying to play through not being 100 percent. specifically might have just made his knee injury a lot worse because he played against the warriors on uh wednesday tuesday on Tuesday, he played against the Warriors when he absolutely should not have been, but he did, knowing he's near disqualification already with, like, I think he has, like, six games of breathing room left. He played, knowing that fact, and also because the the Sixers were slipping a bit in the standings. They're the fifth seed right now, lost four in a row. I mentioned that a little bit earlier, but, um, and also maybe because of, like, media scrutiny, four missed games, which I have to say, because this stuff really really disheartens me um but can we all remember that these are fucking humans please and their careers and their longevity and health is way more important than any award in any given season so don't make it personal don't dehumanize a guy because he's missing more games than you'd prefer um and i know that probably doesn't apply to anybody like specifically watching or listening to this it's more so for the demagogues that produce segments on television where they talk about people in such a flagrant manner. But nonetheless, point being, I do believe in this rule to an extent. I'm standing by it to an extent. So I totally get that designating any specific number as like the threshold is really frustrating. I totally get that. I totally see that. Because what's like really the difference between like 63 games and 66? Well, one's still eligible for end-of-season awards, while the other isn't. And those are very close, obviously. 
And as I brought up, I hate the idea of a player being uh, or feeling forced to play when they're not good just so that they can stay in the conversation for these awards. And then they end up getting seriously injured in in ways that weren't really uh, wouldn't have been a problem if they just rested as normal. Um, However, I do think that has to do more with how we talk about these players and how we talk about the sport in general and just not pressuring these players to live up to impossible standards and stack these awards or basing players' careers off of these awards. Listen, Joel Embiid is, is, will always be as talented as Joel Embiid was, regardless of if, if, if he wins the MVP this season and if he never won last season. Like, that's, that's still the same guy in, in my view, and I wish a lot of people shared that perspective that like if you're playing at like a level of like an MVP like you are that guy like I don't think you need to necessarily have won it to to prove like your you know your production was like real or something but unfortunately the way we talk about a lot of things you know you need you need to have those championships or those MVPs or defensive player like whatever it is on your on your on your resume and it needs to be a certain amount of them to stack up to other players even if we can look at just you as a player and say you were probably better than that guy regardless, and that's really frustrating. Um, and I think it forces pe- players to uh, to feel like they have to push themselves beyond uh, what they really should. Um, so I get that, and we should just as a whole from the outside as fans and media or whatever should um, tailor how we talk about it so that players don't feel forced like that. However... At some point, I do think the league needed to or needs to step in and say, hey, despite how amazing you are, despite how ridiculous the numbers you put up and how incredible some of the performances you had were, you didn't play such a substantial amount of the season that it's like, do you really best represent the season as a whole? You know, and also, is it fair to another player with similar numbers? I understand that this doesn't particularly pertain to like this season when you have like a clear-cut candidate who's putting up crazy numbers like Joel Embiid, but in general, if you've got a guys who are maybe like, you know, 2 points uh 2 points less and uh you know, 1 point uh or one like rebound less, couple of assists less, like it's a very very close amount of production on maybe a team with similar records. Um uh, yeah, maybe I will want to give it to the dude who played like 78 games but had slightly worse uh, individual numbers um, than the dude who played, you know, 59 and had uh, slightly better numbers. But, and, and, you know, so I would get that that's frustrating. But the question then becomes, okay, well, then what, what should be considered a substantial amount of the season, right? And that sort of brings it back to it being hard slash just flat out arbitrary to assign any specific number however if we look at what it is 65 that's a hair under 80 percent of the season you know that's allowing for a player to miss a fifth of the season i just i don't know is is 60 games better you know i know it's still a hard number but like is it better that's only asking for like i don't even think 73 percent of this season um so I don't know. This seems like something that you're not going to get everyone to agree on, especially as it, especially as it pertains to like trying to find like a hard figure to land on that can be like most universally accepted. But maybe we can try. You know, I know not everyone's going to be happy, but like maybe there is like a number week that's like very generous, but also like 
holds some semblance of a standard. I think it's right around this like range, this 60 to 65 range. I wouldn't mind 60. Um, and 65 is also probably like as high as I would go. Um, but you know, I don't know. It's really difficult. Maybe you want to change what it is to not just like games and make it like based off of like a percentage of, I don't know, like games. I don't know, like one loss. I don't know. I need to hear more opinions and perspectives on it before I like definitively said what uh, I think the plan should be. But I, I empathize with the people who are frustrated by this rule, but I also, I also still stand by the rule to an extent. Again, I believe, I believe at some point you got to go, Hey guy, you only played 30 games. Like I, I can't give you these awards or, or whatever. Um, and a lot of this stems from awards and specifically like all, uh, all league selections being tied to contract incentives. And so cucking a guy out of a lot more money because he maybe got injured and didn't meet the games played criteria to get selected to an all NBA team or whatever it is as per his contract. And he loses out on additional tens of millions of dollars. Tyrese Halliburton is a great example of this. He could lose out on $54.1 million if he becomes ineligible this season for uh, an all-NBA team, and he is uh, pretty close. I believe he's only like six games away or something like that, and I get that. That's shitty. That's a $55 million difference. That shouldn't be happening. I think contract incentives should just not be tied to something a player can't control. Whether it be them getting injured or just not making the list, you know, getting snubbed. If a guy plays at an all-NBA caliber level, does like does what was asked of him in his contract, hey, we want you to play at this level. Okay, well, I play at this level. But then I just don't make the list because for, for some reason, because there was other great players this season, doesn't mean I wasn't playing at that level. Someone just got it over me. I talk about this all the time, but there are inherently going to be more deserving runner-ups than there will be a winner automatically based on how many slots there are and how many eligible candidates there are and so that shouldn't stop someone from getting getting paid what they can get uh, just because of that so i would like to see um contracts incentives not be tied to things players cannot control anyways with that conversation out of the way we've got an award show to get through so, the awards on deck for this evening are the Most Improved Player, Sixth Man of the Year, Coach of the Year, Rookie of the Year, Defensive Player of the Year, and Most Valuable Player. So, very excited. And we're going to start with the Most Improved Player. It's not the most coveted award for sure, but it's stacked this season. I don't know if it's, I, I don't usually pay attention to this award. I'm going to be honest, at least uh, not as deeply as I have this season, because again, there are tons of like really valid candidates. I'm usually like, uh, this, pro- this player will probably get it. But this season, there's a lot of really fun players who genuinely have cases. To the point where I made an honorable mentions, um, and my honorable mentions are Jalen Johnson of the Atlanta Hawks, Cam Thomas of the Brooklyn Nets, Alprin Shingun of the Houston Rockets, and Scotty Barnes of the Toronto Raptors. Jalen Johnson would, he would probably be my pick out of these guys. Um, He's had a really, really sleeper uh, season. I think in general, he's just a sleeper player in terms of his impact. He's had really solid uh, leaps in production, efficiency. He was injured for a little while early on, but he came back. 
And um, I mentioned it really quickly, but when I was on vacation, I went to D.C. And on New Year's Eve, uh, me and some friends, we watched the uh, the Wizards host the Hawks. And I got to see Jalen Johnson play IRL, and that dude is nice. He is strong. He can get to the rim. He's athletic. Very, very good. I think Jalen Johnson is going to be a really, really good NBA player. Cam Thomas um, has had, I think, the biggest just statistical leap, specifically as it pertains to points, which is really what um, people tend to focus on when it comes to this award. He went from a 10-point-per-game guy to a now 21-point-per-game guy. He was averaging like 30 when the season started. We remember that. But um, out of anybody that's displayed, I think he's the, – the problem with why and why um, – why Cam Thomas is not on this list. My reason for Jalen Johnson not being on this list is just I wanted to keep it to like uh, five or four players and like he wasn't going to win it anyway. So I was just like, I feel like he'll stand out more if I make him an honorable mention. For Cam Thomas, the reason why he's not really considered for this award uh, um, beyond uh, the actual candidates um, is because I don't think he's improved as much as he's had just more opportunity because his minutes have also doubled. You know, his scoring has doubled, but his minutes have also gone from 16 and a half to like 32. So it's it's not so much, uh, wow, didn't know this dude had it in him. It's more like, okay, he's finally like a starter or like getting that consistent playing time, um, like what he showed in spurts in seasons past. Also, Cam Thomas does not offer much other than scoring. So as a player, I don't believe he's really improved. Um Alperin Shingun, one of my favorite players in the entire league. Uh, if anybody deserves the baby Jokic moniker, uh, it's Alperin Shingun. Um, he's had a really strong, really solid leap, um, averaging I think the same amount of like uh, he's averaging the same amount of rebounds, but he's averaging about seven points more. I think he's up to like twenty-two. Um, I think maybe like an assist more, um, but not much else has changed from past seasons. And for Alperin Shingun, my reasoning is. I see this more as a really good player who's just taken the next step in his career rather than a player taking a huge leap out of nowhere. Um, you know, Albert Shingun, I believe, is going to be an all-star throughout his career at least a handful of times. And so this kind of leap is not surprising to me as more as I'm just sort of like, yay, go Alpi, I'm happy for you. You know, keep keep keeping on, brother. Um, so, yeah. And then Scotty Barnes, uh, sort of a similar rationale for that. Scotty has been a much better score, um, seven point increase from both his uh, rookie and sophomore seasons, and uh, on much much better efficiency too. Especially from shooting three ball, if I believe I don't have the numbers exactly, but um, I believe his three ball is much much better. Um, this is definitely an improvement, but I feel like it stands out the way it does because of his sophomore season, which was basically a replicant of his rookie season, but just with none of the aura he had as a rookie. So it felt like he was, he had like completely plateaued and people were like, oh my God, Scotty Barnes a bust, like whatever, which I think is really stupid. Like we got to remember he's a top four pick rookie of the year. Um, but I think this step that we're seeing from, from Scotty now, if this happened in his second season, 
we wouldn't really be that surprised. We would just continue to be talking about him as like a future star, which Scotty Barnes is kind of like back into those conversations after a really mediocre rookie season. So again, less of an improvement, more of like a down year makes this look phenomenal, which it is. I don't want to like, uh, I don't want to diminish it, but yeah. So those are my honorable mentions. Shout out to all of you guys. Uh, you're great NBA players. Love you all. Uh, but my candidates for the most improved player, uh, award is Tyrese Maxey, Kobe White, and, uh, Keegan Murray. So Tyrese Maxey, we'll just, you know, get this out of the way. Tyrese Maxey has probably got, got this award locked up. He probably has. The dude's averaging like 26, almost seven assists, almost four rebounds, almost 40% from three by only having a few more minutes added um, to his playing time. Every awards and, and uh, award odds like tracker, betting site, whatever, has got Maxi as the favorite. Every mainstream media outlet's going to talk about Maxi as the favorite. Like he's absolutely going to win this award, likely. Um, and it's not that he doesn't deserve it. He's had an absolutely phenomenal season. Uh, the Sixers look even better since trading Harden and sort of giving the point guard keys to him. And he deserves all the praise, absolutely. Um, I do think it's maybe a little bit of a similar case to uh, um, not similar to Cam Thomas in the same way, but like I think we knew Tyrese Maxey could be this kind of guy. I think it was just a matter of him no longer being like a backup or no longer being not the main dude with uh, being able to bring the ball up and stuff like that. Now he does. He's gotten additional roles, and I think he's just sort of uh, flourished and blossomed into the player we all kind of knew he would be. So I personally see it as a little bit less of an improvement than these other two players. First of all, I want to talk about Keegan Murray of the Kings, who has exploded as a perimeter defender this season while upping his scoring volume a bit. His efficiency is not as good, but it's been slowly crawling back. People were like, oh, Keegan Murray can't shoot threes. And look, it was looking rough at the start of the season, but Keegan Murray had a record-breaking rookie season for three points. Um, It wasn't just going to go away overnight. Slow start. But Keegan Murray is really emerging as a guy who could develop into a perennial all-defensive type player. Could end up being like a 6'8 prime Clay Thompson when we talk about if we get that 40, you know, 142% three point shooting back on really really high volume and then you're also an elite perimeter defender that's a really really high value player so Keegan Murray shout out to him and in general the the Kings have sort of um done away with their identity as like a record-breaking offense uh handed those reins over to the uh to the Pacers um exchange for becoming a more competent defense that'll probably actually take them further in the playoffs so i know a lot of people don't talk about the kings and this is not about teams so i don't really know why i'm doing this but i haven't talked about the kings and i don't really have that much to say so i might as well throw this in here but the kings are the fifth seed and they look pretty strong and i think they're a decent team um i think they don't look like as impressive or whatever in relation to the west this season which is an absolute like bloodbath and it's a very tight competitive conference but i do think the kings actually did get better even if like it looks like they're worse anyways um and then the last player for this candidate or last candidate for this award is kobe white who has had a ridiculous breakout he's up to averaging almost seven or 19 points per game that is a 10 point increase he's 
doubled the rebounds, assists. He's on better efficiency. The Bulls suck. They're a team that needs to blow it up. But Kobe White has done tremendous things for uh, upping his own personal value, so hopefully they can ship him off to a good team or something and the Bulls can get stuff in return so that they can rebuild or whatever. Um, and so the Bulls are mid, but when when this kind of breakout really started, um, maybe like a month-ish into the season, Zach Levine got injured and... Kobe White led the Bulls on like a four-game winning streak or something like that, or or like a like a six and four in the last ten after Zach Levine got injured. They looked a lot better with him, like kind of leading the charge. Kobe White is my personal choice. The league will probably choose Tyrese Maxey, but my personal choice is Kobe White. I think he has genuinely had the most breakout improvement as a player. Um, so he's he, he's getting this award in my book. Alright, and moving on to the Sixth Man of the Year Award. My candidates are Nas Reed, Norman Powell, Malik Monk, Bogdan Bogdanovich, and Tim Hardaway Jr. Um, I think all of these guys have a very fair, valid shot. I wouldn't be that upset if any of these guys wanted. So you could also call this a really deep category. Obviously, I would have been pulling for Emmanuel quickly, um, but he's he's no longer a Nick, which doesn't mean I don't support him, but he's a starter now. So he's just no longer in this conversation. He's on to, to bigger and better things. So shout out to Emmanuel quickly and shout out to all of these guys. Um, starting with, uh, let's start with Bogdan Bogdanovich. Um, he's been having a really, really great season for the Hawks. Uh, 17 points, two and a half assists on like 43, 37, 90 shooting splits. It's a very similar vibe to another guy we'll talk about in a second. Um, but he's been a very important player for the Hawks. Um, despite them being very mid, they're the 10th seed right now. That's not on him per se. Um, if, 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 uh, if you look at the Hawks situation and you you single out Bogdan Bogdanovich as the reason this is happening, I think you you've probably missed the mark there, um, and that's probably why I I don't think he'll he uh, would win it or would be my pick. Uh, in general, I like to see a six man on a really competitive team, um, where I think they're like them coming off of the bench and keeping that team really solid. Uh, has much more noticeable impact than a dude coming off of the bench averaging a bunch of points on a 10th seed. So sorry to bogey, but uh, yeah, valid pick. Uh, Tim Hardaway Jr. of the Mavs has probably been the MVP of the Mavs outside of Luka considering how many many, uh, injuries they've been going through. It's a really hoppled team right now, and Tim Hardaway's had to step up pretty big. He's averaging 18.4 points, 4 rebounds, almost 2 assists on... And this is why it's very similar. It's very similar shooting splits to uh, Bogdan Bogdanovich. 43% from the field, 37 from three, 87 from the charity stripe. None crazy, but uh, the Mavs, you know, they haven't been amazing. They're the uh, they're the eighth seed right now. I think they were the seventh seed just last night, but they lost. Um, uh, but, but Tim Hardaway Jr. has been incredible. He's a reason they're able to stay in-game sometimes. That 18 points off the bench is huge. I mean... Averaging almost 20 off the bench is crazy. Um, but, yeah, shout-out to Tim Hardaway Jr. Incredible, immense value. Kind of throws away what I just said about preferring my six men to be on, like, uh, competitive, high-seeded teams um, to kind of illustrate their impact to winning uh, a bit more. Obviously, the Mavs are the A-seed. They're just not doing a whole lot of winning in general. However, I've got to, like, throw away that rule as it pertains to Tim Hardaway Jr. because he is 
absolutely having a lot of impact uh, positively on this team. Even though he had that weird turnover thing where he didn't call a timeout uh, like two games ago. Anyways, um, Malik Monk, he hasn't started a single game. I think he's the only one here who hasn't started a single game. Uh, he's averaging 14.5 points, 5.5 assists on uh, 43% from the field, 38% from three, and 82% from the free throw line. Not, not bad, you know, nothing, nothing too crazy, nothing, uh, it's, it's probably the least impressive in terms of, like, just sheer box score production, uh, off the bench, which is the way this award is typically kind of awarded, no pun intended, but, uh, the Kings have been, you know, quietly good, as I've said, and I think he has a lot to do with that, he's such a fun player to watch, if you haven't watched Malik Monk, uh, play, he's just, such a high octane energy hustle guy um making all those like dirty gritty grimy play not dirty gritty grimy plays uh dirty makes it sound like he's out there breaking uh breaking people's kneecaps and things like that he's not doing any of that um but he's a very exciting electric player always is breaking the energy definition of a dude you would want on on your team if you had malik monk coming off of your bench you're like yeah go out there go out there malik um, so shout out to him. Uh, and then Norman Powell, elite score, best. You could argue, even though he's not averaging it right now, that Norman Powell is the best bench scorer in the league. He has been in previous years, just, just last season even. Um, but right now he's averaging 14 points on a ridiculous 59.5 from the field, 44.7% from three, 87 uh, per, or 86% from the free throw line. Borderline 50, 45, 90 splits uh, off of the bench is crazy. While the Clippers look like serious contenders, they're a top three seed now in the West. They've just continually climbed up. They have been so, so good. Norm Powell, absolutely a, a big reason of that because they're they're fourth in offense, but 26 in pace. Something to consider. Teams that are really ISO heavy like a Clippers or they, they rely on players to score that are very ISO heavy like a like a Paul George or a Kawhi or a James Harden, obviously, um, to still then be putting up enough points just by the end of the game to have the fourth best offense. A lot of that's got to be from your other guys then who are just constantly receive uh, the recipients of plays and are finishing them and at for Norman Powell's case at a very, very high efficiency efficiency sorry i've got like like diet hiccups or something anyways shout out norman Powell. um and then nas reed nas reed of the minnesota timberwolves if you haven't seen that tiktok uh or just video whatever it is of the woman on jeopardy saying she has a cat named nas reed and then alec trebek is just like nas reed has no idea who the fuck she's talking about and then it just transitions into uh, a nas reed edit which is hilarious that video is amazing, and every time I hear Nas Reed's name now, I just think of that video. But he is the sixth man to the second best overall team in the league, averaging 12.5 points, 4.5 rebounds, uh, and an assist on 49% from the field, 41% from three, and 79% from the free throw line. So, again, re- amazing efficiency in just 22 minutes a game. He's an elite 3 and D guy. Um, he's undersized as a center, but he has the physicality to 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 
actually truly play that center while obviously being able to stretch the floor uh, and basically just play like a perimeter forward because that's really what his build and size is. He just has the physicality and the explosiveness to kind of um, play and, and, and defend like at the rim and stuff like that. So he's kind of a cheat code as like a backup center, especially when you have, and I've made this point before already, so sorry, but like when you have Rudy Gobert, who's like a goddamn generational rim protector, three-time defensive player of the year. Yeah, you don't really want him out on the perimeter too much because he will get blown by. But you just got Nas Reed you can throw in the game instead and be like, oh, okay, we're going small. But small is still the hyper-athletic 6'9 Nas Reed who's shooting 42% from three uh, and can yam it on a motherfucker. So Nas Reed, bit of a cheat code. And Nas Reed is my pick for sixth man of the year. I've got to stay true to my uh, to my own rules. Um, I mean, sixth man of the year on the second-best overall team. I think that's... That's almost a case in and of itself, but then on top of that, his actual production is elite in the amount of minutes he's playing, um, amazing defender, all these things. So yeah, Nas Reed is my pick for the defense or six man of the year, sorry, <laughs> defensive player of the year. That'd be crazy. Um, next up, I only started giving this one thought like two days ago because I wasn't, I had not initially been like, oh yeah, let me put coach of the year in this award show, but uh figured I should. And um it's kind of a weird award because it's like whoever's had the most impressive like season and then whoever's like that coach. Um last year it was the Kings. That made sense. They were like the th- it made sense. They had uh an amazing season and Mike Brown's awesome. Um and so in my opinion, if I kind of go along that train of thought the Timberwolves and the Thunder are are the standouts in having exceeded expectations for this season. Um, so that means that the award's got to go between Mark Dagnall, who's the Thunder coach, or Chris Finch, the Minnesota Timberwolves coach. Um, and I think that the Thunder being the uh, first seed in the West um, and not having a MVP candidate like a Shea, I, it's kind of a weird rationale so bear with me but i think you can kind of say that chris finch has done more with less if you will um and so that's why i have him as my uh coach of the year um number one seed with you know at most two all-stars they'll have uh so yeah that's that's pretty impressive and considering what the wolves were the seventh seed last year eighth seed last season um yeah this is a hell of a turnaround for them. And also, the Timberwolves are probably, like, a little bit better than the Thunder. Um, the Thunder just need to get rid of Josh Giddy um, and exchange him for someone who can uh, also score um, because they played against each other. There's a great video. Um, I think it's called uh, The Minnesota Timberwolves Just, Like, Exposed uh, the Thunder's Weakness. I believe that's what it's called. Apologies if that's not exactly what it is. But it's a great breakdown of their... Um, last matchup because they only are going to play two times this season and they already played the first one so this was the second one they're not going to meet again until they meet in the playoffs if they meet in the playoffs um and so it was a good game to sort of analyze what they would be as a matchup and uh the the Timberwolves obviously don't have maybe the the same kind of offense that the Thunder do but when you can ignore Josh Giggity Um, It basically becomes four on five, and Josh Giddy is one of the worst shooters in the entire league. He shoots, per that video, like 30% on open threes, so, whoa. Anyways, this has, like, become a Josh Giddy hate sesh, which I'm not against, but um, it's just not what the conversation at hand was, so... 
yeah, we're just going to move on. But the Thunder, I think, are a little bit better than the uh, – or, sorry, the Timberwolves, I think, are a little bit better than the Thunder. Doing it with, I think, a less, like, loaded roster, um, it's still incredible. Um, so it's like, yeah, more with less, I suppose. So Chris Finch is my coach of the year. All right, moving on to the rookie of the year. So – it's got to be Chad or Wemby, right? <laughs> I mean, you know, no no offense to any of the other rookies out there. And there's some incredible ones. We'll, we'll give a little bit of a shout-out to a few after this. But I think it has to be uh, Wembenyama or Chet. Um, and I think people were really discounting Wembenyama because of how bad the Spurs have been. And in contrast, the immediate impact we've seen Chet have on a top four team in the league, the second seed in their conference. And Chet's phenomenal. He's been wildly efficient for a rookie 16.7 points seven and a half rebounds on 53 percent from the field 37 percent from three 77 percent from the free throw line and out earlier in the season for for a good stretch like the first 10 15 um 20 even games uh that three point was well over 40 percent it's come down to earth a bit but still 37 percent for a seven footer rookie incredible this dude's been efficiency man and really, it's his defensive uh, impact and prowess that cannot be understated. Um, he's he's had such a, a profound uh, impact and uh, uh, on the on the Thunder, making them such a high seeded uh, defense. And we'll 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 talk about that in a second. But that being said, I do think there's levels to this, and I'm sorry. Is this going to sound kind of reductive for Ch- to Chet, but? Wemby's just a little different, okay? Wemby is averaging 21 points, 10 rebounds, 3 assists, and leads the league in blocks with 3.2 blocks, averaging the second most stocks, that's steals and blocks, in the past 15 years. In the past 15 seasons, no one has averaged more combined steals and blocks. Well, one person. I I don't remember who it was. I think it was Anthony Davis. This is from a Jimmy Highroller video from a couple of... uh, uh, days ago or like a week ago shout out to that video as well jimmy high roller he makes great content um and he had a good video on wemby which is where this stat came from and i thought wow that's fascinating um yeah the second most steals and blocks combined at any player in the past 15 years and he's doing it as a rookie yeah just like chet instantly as he uh, instantly as he came into the league, Wemby is one of the best defenders in the entire league, um, at least as a rim protector. And then the dude just there are defensive possessions that no human on earth other than Victor Wembanyama can do. He can be in the paint and close out to someone on the perimeter before they've even shot the ball. They can decide maybe not to shoot it because here comes the seven and a half footer. They can pass it out. Wemby can recover and and like it's his it's his flexibility. It's his eight foot wingspan. It's his um ability to just uh swipe down from really far away without fouling. Like his his reach is insane he just just by standing there he stops dudes from from driving at the rim it's been insane and also he's been surprisingly available for what i thought i i, I did not think victor Wembanyama would be the rookie of the year because i figured they were going to play him very conservatively um but uh and maybe even like load manage like the shit out of him um and only let him play like 55 games or something like that but he's already played 41 games out of like the what 47 48 
Um, and also, all the stats that I just said for Victor, Victor Weminyama, he's doing in only 28 minutes a game. He is on minutes restriction uh, most of the time. The past few games, he's played like 30 plus minutes, but for a good stretch after I think he injured his ankle, he was playing 22, 24 minutes, and he was still putting up 22, 24 points, 10 rebounds, 11 rebounds, 3 blocks in 24 minutes of action. I mean, we're going to talk about it. His per 36 numbers are a joke. They're laughable. This is a rookie, guys. His per 36 numbers, and I talk about it, per 36 numbers, we're not supposed to put all of our, uh, we're not supposed to put all of our, um, our eggs into the per 36 basket. Obviously, it's a hypothetical estimation for if that person was to play more. Victor Wemanyama could play the additional eight minutes and not do anything. Possible, but his per 36 numbers suggest 26 points, 13 rebounds, four assists, a steal and a half, and four blocks. I mean, that's like, that's like a top 10, 15 player at worst, like in the NBA. And these are his rookie stats. It's insane. Victor Wembanyama. Um, he's also gotten his efficiency up to a very uh, respectable um, 47% from the field, 30% from three, 80% from the uh, free throw line. Um, I think the standout in that, um, and they were really, those were much rougher. It was like low 40s for a good stretch of the season early on and like mid 20s from three. Um, I think if Victor Wembanyama is like a 30 six percent three-point shooter in his career that is all he would ever need to be um but also i think a lot of his efficiency comes from the way he's been i don't want to say misused by the spurs because i can't look into greg popovich's mind and uh, uh tell you exactly what he's planning to do with victor Wembanyama, and also the fact that the team has a bunch of young players and maybe and he's just trying to probably give them um, room and space and opportunity to make mistakes and grow themselves so that maybe this is a core being developed together. It's possible. Um, that being said, it does come at the ex- uh, expense of a lot of direct feed Wemby the ball kind of plays. So a lot of his numbers are really just coming throughout the natural flow of the game where he can get his and he's putting up ridiculous numbers. And that means his efficiency kind of, uh, uh, has suffered because a lot of the times he's not taking shots around the rim. He's he's finding he's just kind of like roaming around in the in the in the mids and, and perimeter. Um and we'll get maybe not ideal uh open looks in terms of like a high percentage shot, but he's brought it up to a I think a respectable amount. You know, I'm sure by the end of the season too he could be like sniffing fifty percent from the field, thirty three percent from three, um and eighty percent from the free throw line I think is really huge and most people are going to be like, oh, whatever, 80% from the free throw line. But we see how much of a struggle free throws are for some players in the league still. Right now, top players, not going to name them, but for a rookie who's seven foot four to be already elite 80% from the free throw line, I think is I think that's a very, very strong sign going into the future that you can't just like foul him uh and send him to the line as a way of stopping him because he's going to knock down those shots. So, yeah, um, Wemby has just been incredible. Everything that people thought he would be. Um, and I thought 
a very I was very conservative about it, so he's been even more. Um, and I think even if the pick wasn't in favor of Wemby from the beginning, and obviously the narrative is is for Victor Wembanyama, everything about him is uh, is is number one pick, generational, all these things. So it's kind of geared up for him to win it anyways. He probably wouldn't have to do what he's doing to win it, but he is doing what he's doing, and he's my pick. The dude's generational. There's really not that much else to say. Um, if he's doing all of this in his first 40 games of his career, what will Victor Wembanyama look like in three seasons? You know, what will Victor Wembanyama look like going into his sixth season in the NBA? What will Victor Wembanyama look like as a 28-year-old? We could be talking about some some really scary stuff. Like, we might be talking about, like, unironically, it's over for the league type stuff. Um, but I do want to do a quick shout-out to Brandon Miller and Jaime Jaquez Jr. Um, I talked about Jaquez a bit already in this episode in the uh, in the Heat segment, obviously. He's been an immediate impact guy. 14-ish uh, points, 4 rebounds, 3 assists on really strong efficiency for a rookie. 50-35-84 splits. Um <clears throat> Obviously, the, uh, the the Miami Heat have not been um, been doing as good as they would probably hope to, but um, I don't think any of that has to do with Jaime Hawkins Jr., and I think he's adjusted and had a really solid impact as a rookie. And then Brandon Miller, who's been really quiet um, and been putting up solid numbers, 15 points, 4 rebounds, 2 assists on 44, 38, 81 splits. Now, listen, the Hornets are my least favorite franchise in the entire NBA, and it is not particularly close. So I I pray that he is able to escape this franchise, or either that or the franchise just gets completely overhauled and everyone except for LaMelo, um, Mark Williams, and Brandon Miller are traded. And hopefully Miles Bridges is sent to the gulag. Yep, anytime I get a chance to call Miles Bridges a piece of shit, I'm going to do it. Fuck you, Miles Bridges. Anyways, um, so yeah, I just don't like that team. They have no semblance of like what they're doing. They're tanking, but like not enough, not good enough. They're the 13th seed, um, so they're getting outclassed by the Pistons and the Wizards when it comes to being shit. But yeah, no idea what they're doing. I, I think... That also was like hurts uh, Brandon Miller to an extent because when you have a rookie coming in and there's not really a concrete role for him and in general the team just doesn't know what the fuck it's doing, um, that kind of just leaves a dude to kind of figure his own things out and find his own game, which he has been doing and he's, he's really athletic, he's got a smooth finish around the rim, I mean... I think Brandon Miller in a couple of seasons when he's maybe a bit like bigger, a bit stronger, a bit more of an NBA body, um, and is also just, you know, better in every other category. Brandon Miller is going to be a nice, nice uh, NBA player. Like if any team is trying to maybe poach him from the uh, from the Hornets, I think that would be a really strong investment down the line. Brandon Miller is the truth. You know, he doesn't get enough credit because the the draft is really all about Wembenyama. You can't uh, can't control that, unfortunately. But he's been insane. Uh, so yeah. Also, Scoot, I see you, Scoot. I didn't forget about you, Scoot. I'm not giving up on you, Scoot. I called you the uh, okay. Listen, I called you the Rookie of the Year. That's not going to happen. We can see that. But um, you had a rough start to the to the season. You're slowly getting there. 12, assi- uh, 12 points, uh, four, four and a half over uh, assists, three rebounds, 
I'm not I'm not gonna say your shooting splits, but they're 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 getting better. They're getting better. Um listen, Scoo Henderson had a rough start to the season, but if you watch him now, he's actually he's actually not bad. Um and I was watching him a bit because I was watching the uh the Bucks uh Portland game last night and Dude, you can't guard the dude from the perimeter. He can get by you really quickly. So when that team's bad, and he's not a bad passer. I think he's like leading rookies in assists anyways, despite how awful his start was. Um, so, Scoot, I know you've had a really rough start um, to your career. And a lot of people are shitting on you and calling you a bust. And in general, I think some recent prospects have absolutely skewed the way we look at rookie guards specifically. You know, it's one thing when you come into the league as a rookie, but you're you are physically already on par with the the grown men of the league. Like, yeah, maybe you're 19, you're 20, but you're six foot eight and you're 215 pounds. It's a lot different when you're, you know, 19, 20 and you're 6'2 and 185 pounds and there's a much larger uh, discrepancy kind of to be made up for, uh, a much larger adjustment that needs to be made. Um, I think guys like Luka Doncic and Trey Young who were immediately really, really good out of the gate have skewed the expectations. Um, I mean, this stuff happens all the time. Um, when, when someone's doing something really, really crazy at the top, it kind of, uh, kind of lights a fire under the guys, even at the bottom. It's a bit unfortunate, but I think Scoot is going to have a a fine career. Um, at least based, at least if he, even if he doesn't, it's not going to have to do with these, with the poor, you know, 25 game start he had to his career. He's getting there. Um, and I'm excited to see what Scoot is in a couple of seasons. So yeah. And now on to our final two awards for this evening's awards show. We've got the Defensive Player of the Year. All right, so my my candidates are Rudy Gobert, Anthony Davis, Bam Adebayo, Chet Holmgren, Evan Mobley, and OG Ananobi. <laughs> um, not well. Okay, so here's the thing: OG Ananobi isn't like really OG Ananobi is like a is like an honorable mention for me. Um, and then. Another honorable mention is uh, is Joel Embiid. So I'm going to get through the honorable mentions first. Um, OG, if you're a Knicks fan, you know like the memes like OG Ananobi is plus minus man. He's like that's his superhero moniker. The dude's uh, box plus minus uh, impact. It's it's generational. It's never been seen before even. Um, the, he, he leads the league in plus minus and he just joined the team like three weeks ago um a month ago but uh regardless OG on for for himself I mean he's unfathomable impact he's had on the Knicks so far I mean the Knicks have had the number one defense in 2024 OG himself is one of the two three very best perimeter defenders in the entire NBA he has he's everywhere on the floor he's everywhere on the floor because he's also quite big and strong um and handsome, and uh, intelligent, and kind, and has a nice smile, um, and I, I really just think his impact shouldn't be understated, um, and in general, the Knicks defense, and I'm not going to turn this into a Knicks rant, um, as I very easily could on how amazing their defense is, but it wouldn't quite be what it is without him. The reason that I I just can't, like, in good faith really put OG Ananobi in the same conversation as some of the other guys is the fact that the Knicks' overall defense is just so potent. It was already really good before him. Um, 
And so it's kind of hard to say that he is like the defensive player of the year. Um, if I was to give it to anybody on this team uh, and they were healthy, it would be Mitchell Robinson. Um, but regardless, uh, the Knicks have an incredible suffocating defense. And OG Ananobi has been ridiculous in terms of impact uh, in his short time with the Knicks so far. So shout out to him. Absolutely an honorable mention. Would absolutely be like a top 10 uh, finalist on my list. A top 6 finalist on my list. Shit. Um, and then for Embiid, I think he's just kind of like an underrated rim protector. <clears throat> he's averaging nearly two blocks over a steal a game. That's some cool production defensively. But also he's just just barely out of the top five in rebounding. So in terms of like the, the, the counting stats that people are looking for in a defensive player of the year, he's got the numbers. Um, and Philly has a top 10 defense. They have the eighth best. Um, so there's definitely like a case to be made. However, just like OG, it's, I think the defensive rating is really a testament to the overall team's construction and their depth and the, uh, just sheer amount of defensive talent that is on the team, uh, on the overall roster. I mean, Philly is just loaded with a bunch of huge wings, so... I would kind of hope that they're good at defense, but I wanted to make him an honorable mention to sort of just shout uh, Joel Embiid out because, you know, he's sort of like an anchor anyway. Um, And, uh, yeah. So, on to the uh, actual candidates for this award. We'll just start with Rudy Gobert. I don't have, like, a whole lot to say about Rudy Gobert. It's just, you know, best defensive rating in the league. He leads the best defense in the league. He's second in rebounding. He's been the clear favorite throughout this entire season um he's he's a monster rim protector probably the best like anchor uh in the nba there's there's not a lot to say i mean you watch minnesota timberwolves games and i mean rudy gobert like it's like all jokes aside and also rudy gobert is like um it's kind of like relatively a stiff player so sometimes it maybe doesn't look uh as as nice as like fluid um but the dude's a monster the dude's a beast i'm pretty sure he's like third in blocks or something like that but yeah it's a pretty it's a pretty clear cut case for him uh anthony davis however has a maybe slightly less clear cut case but still phenomenal um <clears throat> arguably his best defensive season of his career outside of the one where he was like runner up uh, for defensive player of the year in like 2018. Um, you could argue maybe he's even better right now, but he's got the numbers 2.3 blocks, uh, 1.2 steals tied third in rebounding. Um, and he's only missed three games, which is really cool. That's <laughs> it's kind of fucked up that I even bring that up. Cause it's like only like a surprise special cool thing when it comes to like an Anthony Davis, but Certainly makes him much closer to getting an award, I guess. But I don't know. The Lakers have just been like really, really bad. And <clears throat> maybe if maybe if like the season ended three weeks ago, a month ago, Anthony Davis would have a much better case for Defensive Player of the Year. But their defense has gone from the top ten to the fifteenth, sixteenth now. Um, Yeah, 15th right now. Okay, it was the 16th, I think, like, last night. Anyways, anyways, not the point. Um, and so it slipped, and in general, the Lakers just continue to slip and lose against awful teams. Uh, they're the ninth seed. They're they're dead tied with the Jazz for the 10th seed, so they're almost, like, just, they're, they're close to just not even being in the conversation of plans. I know it won't get that bad, but, like, uh, they've just been a pretty – 
pretty abysmal, uh, sorry team for the past, like, two months. Uh, you got LeBron tweeting out uh, an hourglass emoji. TikTok times times running up, makes moves. Um, as as Le, as Le moves and Le Shaker does, <laughs> but yeah, the team's just kind of in a sorry state. So it, it's it's just hard to say. Like, yeah, you're you're the best defensive player there. You are anchoring their defense, but that defense is like middle of the pack. And as a team, you're like barely not at the bottom of the conference. So sorry, just not the team success to uh, give it to Anthony Davis. I don't think. Bam Adebayo. I talked about him earlier having um, probably his best season so far, uh, if not his best defensive season, though, uh, probably at least. Um, and it's it's not that any of his numbers really stand out. And he's got a steal block and a bit, um, 10 and a half rebounds. None of that is really on par with some of the other guys. But, well, also the Heat have the 13th best defense. So it's like, eh, don't really have the individual production or team success. But... I think there's something to say for uh, the lack of like really, really good defenders on the Heat. Um, it's certainly not a bad defensive team, obviously, but I think Bam is is uh, is doing a lot there, especially as like a rim protector. They don't really have um, that much there. Um, and when you watch Bam play, like he's a monster defender. So I think he definitely deserves at least a shout in this conversation. But I also wouldn't be giving it to Bam and Chet. Chet Holmgren, the reason I kind of stopped myself from saying too much about his defense then was because the dude genuinely, I think, and this is not a joke, this is not like a, I'm just putting him here not to give him the award, uh, Chet genuinely deserves to be in the conversation for Defensive Player of the Year. Um, the OKC went from the 13th best defense last season to the 4th best this season um, without the roster really changing much. Um, he's also 4th in the league uh, in blocks fifth uh best defensive rating personally um he's just been a beast i don't think you can really make a case for him right now over uh some of the other guys like an anthony davis maybe or like a or like a gobert but this is someone i can see definitely having multiple defensive player of the years in his career he's everywhere he's got really quick hands as a seven footer great monster uh rim protector even though he's not super big right now you know he's only going to get stronger and stronger and be able to meet you at the rim um and and punch that shit away but he's already doing it as a as what's perceived as like a twig so um chet's chet's defensive uh ceiling is really only like uh beaten by someone like a victor wambinyama um and then I think the last guy, I didn't even write any notes down for him, but Evan Mobley, it's because Evan Mobley doesn't have uh, any, like there's not much of a difference in like his case from this year and last season where he was runner up top. He was top three. I don't remember if he was third or second, but the Cavs are the second best defense in the league. I know that um, Evan Mobley is a fantastic generational defender. I always say that, but he's he's everywhere. He's super slender. He looks, I guess, a little less impressive now that like a Wemby and Chet are in the league, but I don't think that should take away from Evan Mobley. Uh, if anything, that should just give us more appreciation for all the awesome talent in the league. Um, but that being said, I think... I think that's made people not talk about Evan Mobley as much. Like, I haven't heard shit about him this entire season. I'm not really tapped into, like, Cavs spaces like that. But um, still, uh, I think I think most people are just kind of, like, uh, don't care about his defensive impact anymore because that's all people have been telling you about since he entered the league. And now people want to see him be an offensive player. And 
he hasn't really shown a lot of growth in that department. So it's sort of like, eh, maybe this is just who he is. Um, but he's incredible. The reason I wouldn't give him the award is because he is next to someone who genuinely also deserves to at least be considered in like a top 10, top 15 uh, runner up for this award. That's Jared Allen, who is a beast uh, center, incredibly underrated has an all-star under his belt. Let's not forget about Jared Allen. He has been an all-star, um, an, an elite rim protector. Um, defense just becomes easier when you're there or when, when, when Jared Allen is uh, on your team. So it's it's kind of hard to say Evan Mobley is like the defensive player of the year. He's the best defender when you've got that dude holding it down by the paint and you're allowed to just sort of roam and be the awesome uh, kind of Swiss Army knife, seven-foot defender that, that Evan Mobley is. But yeah. With all that being said, um, I choose Rudy. I choose Rudy Gobert as my defensive player of the year. As I said, there's there's nothing crazy to really say about him, but sometimes the most simple answer is like also the right one, and I think that's the case for this. Okay, switched out the battery on the camera, and uh, full transparency, I kind of forgot exactly where the camera was, uh, its exact position, so the the angle could have just completely changed if you're watching anyways uh we're gonna get through this uh this last category here we're almost done holy shit this episode is all already um it's 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 tickling the two hour mark as well that was so so not intentional but okay i guess that's uh good knowledge for um what makes up a two-hour episode anyways most valuable player so my candidates are joel Embiid, nicole Jokic, Giannis antetokounmpo Shea Gilgis-Alexander, and Luka Doncic. This is really the five, right? Like, the three of them, that being Embiid, Giannis, and Jokic, they've been the top three in the MVP race for the past three, four seasons. And, spoiler alert, they're the top three this season, sorry. Um, But this, and they're going to remain that. And the only two people I really see... uh, genuinely sniffing into that and being able to nab like a a runner-up or an actual MVP award until these three are done are Luka Doncic and SGA and also maybe Anthony Edwards I think in another season um I think next season we'll probably be talking about Anthony Edwards as an MVP candidate for sure um but I I the right now Embiid, Giannis, and Jokic just have a stranglehold on this award it's so unfair um, but it's, 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 I mean, we're just currently in the, in the midst of three all time, great big men smack dab having their primes at the same time and passing around the MVP award. And that's, that's really cool. I think, I think that's really cool. We might not like it right now. And we might be like, Oh my God. I'm like, I'm so over these guys right now, but dude, in 20, 30 years, we're going to look back and be like, Holy shit, bro. <clears throat> like Embiid, Jokic, Giannis, like if we had th- we had three top like thirty players, all in their primes, in a like six seven year stretch, just handing the MVP award back and forth to each other, just going bar for bar, winning championships. Hopefully Embiid can maybe win a championship so he can like be in that conversation. But whatever. Anyways, this is really the top five. So uh, yeah, Embiid. Um, Embiid has has like eight. Seven, seven, seven games away from being ineligible for the MVP award, um, which is a shame. He might actually be even closer, if because he he might be closer, but he's extraordinary, extraordinarily close to being disqualified for this award, anyways. But 
Um, and that's a real, that's, I mean, that's, I don't want to like overstate that it's, it's a real shame that the first year that this award is implemented, an award I, again, to an extent, stand by, that the first year it's implemented, the reigning MVP is at risk of being disqualified while simultaneously having not just a career year, but a historic one. I mean, I believe I mentioned this before, but Joel Embiid is averaging the most amount of points per minute ever. More than Wilt's 50-point-per-game season, so... Um, yeah, I've said it before. I stand by the rule to an extent. I've already talked about that, but, um, but Embiid has a case like, like none other. I mean, we'll, we'll read out his box score really quick. He's averaging 35 points, 11 and a half rebounds, um, nearly six assists, uh, over a steal, nearly two blocks, said that in the defensive player of the year thing. On 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 fifty three percent from the field, thirty six and a half percent from three. I mean, this is by far his uh, his his greatest season so far. Um, these numbers are all time, no matter which way you slice it. This is this is Embiid's twenty nineteen Harden season. I've been saying that since the like beginning of the season, so I'm gonna keep saying it. But yeah, he's been unbelievable, and it's a shame that this is even like a an, an issue. Um, but but we'll we'll just have to see I guess I don't know, um, Giannis Giannis the next candidate um, Giannis is I mean talk about a guy who doesn't really get talked about as much um, as I think like he deserves I think Giannis has been like Giannis like I feel like entered his prime um, first out of the three big men there you know it went it went Giannis and then like Embiid was also coming coming up, but Embiid just hasn't, like, gone past uh, a certain plateau in his career, um, even though he continues to get better as a player, um, but then it was, then it was Jokic, and now it feels like it's Giannis or whatever, but that sort of leaves Giannis to be, like, the odd one out, and, like, we are, we are the most unsurprised by Giannis numbers, I should say, because he's been doing it the longest, if that makes sense, but that being said, he is holding the motherfucking Bucks down, all right? Because while Dame is still figuring his stuff out and is will have a really bad game like every every like two or three games, he'll have a stinker. Um, and Chris Middleton, you know, is is getting older. Despite that, he is holding the Bucks to the second seed in the East while putting up career numbers. I mean, uh, he was averaging. He averaged 31 points last season. He he's averaging 31 this season. It was at like 32, so just pretend it's 32. Um, but uh, career high in assists over six uh, a game. Career high efficiency, shooting over 60% from the field. Yeah, I'm you know he like leads the league in points per paint. So obviously those should be high efficiency shots. But still, the volume of 31, 32 points a game, and still holding an efficiency like 60% across the board and that obviously is including like um threes and and uh and any mid-ranges he's taking he's been incredibly efficient um one of the best uh fourth quarter players in the league and i just don't think he's getting the love he kind of deserves um obviously he gets plenty it's Giannis. nobody's like forgetting about him but uh but i think he's despite the the team being pretty shaky to start things off and if feeling like the bucks have uh, not yet even reached their full potential. Um, he's been playing like an absolute beast. Um, so I think he deserves uh, more love in this conversation. 
Then we got Jokic. Um, you know, Jokic is is efficiency, impact, advanced stats man, um, and he's ridiculous. He's been great. He has the best um, on, off, plus, minus, I believe, in the entire league. Um, the Nuggets have made their way up to the second seed now. They were, like, uh, at the four. Oh, sorry. No, they've gone down. It's it's very close. They have more wins than the Clippers, who are the third seed. Um uh, but the Nuggets lost their last game, so right now they're sitting at the fourth seed. Apologies. Um, but technically they have, like, if, if they win, if the Clippers, like, lost their next game, uh, the Nuggets would go back to, like, the first seed, or the first seed, the, the third seed. So, anyway, we'll just call it top three seed. Um, bringing it up, because they did get off to a bit of a slow start, and um, I know Michael Porter Jr. has definitely struggled throughout the season. Um, Jamal Murray is... Just not a regular season kind of guy. Um, and uh, Jokic has still been kind of, you know, holding down the fort, doing his thing, and um, being as, like, efficient and talented as ever. He went through a bit of a, a lull stretch, but, um, and is currently out with, like, a back injury, but I don't think it's, like, that serious. But outside of, um, outside of 2022, he's averaging uh, the same amount of points as the next best, uh, 26.3. 12 rebounds i think that's like um i'm pretty sure he's top three in the league in in rebounding nine assists a steal and a half almost a block a game um 59 from the field uh 36 from three i mean he's Jokic is the best player in the world um and he's a beast his impact remains otherworldly um and i feel like because the the nuggets have like been a little bit less uh less impressive this season them essentially having around the exact same amount of success so far um, really is a testament to Jokic just holding that mofo down. Um, all right, Shea Gilgis Alexander. Uh, this is the the young buck on the street, and um, crazy numbers, crazy numbers, stupid efficiency. Um, he, he leads the league in steals per game, leads the league uh, leads one of the leagues, sorry, uh, one of the league's very best teams, obviously in the Thunder, they're a top four team. He's averaging 31 and a half points, five and a half rebounds, six and a half assists on 55% from the field, 35% from three. That's unreal, dude. Um, he's, uh, he's one of, if not the very best isolation score in the league that the, the amount of score and gravity this dude has, um, uh, makes he's he's a great playmaker as well. The dude's just he's 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 very incredible. And the reason I'm, all, I'm saying all this is because I kind of want to get on my hater shit real quick and say that Shea deserves all the credit he's getting, absolutely, and more even. Um, but I do feel like a lot of the love for him and a lot of like the conversation he puts in um, stem from him sort of more so being like the new guy on the block. You know, like we're used to seeing these other guys put up thirty five and five, so. You know, while what he's doing is incredible, I don't think Shea is the MVP. I don't think Shea is the best player in the league. Like some people have genuinely um, tried to argue. Um, you know, we might get there, but I, as of now, um, he's he's been awesome, and I can't wait to see the dude in the playoffs. I mean, I'm a I'm a I'm one of those assholes who who's like, okay, let's see it in the playoffs. Let's see it when it counts, buddy. Um, so yeah, and that's again no hate to the Thunder because I mean the Thunder have not 
it, it's not like Shea's the reason they haven't been to the playoffs or something like that or whatever. So Shea's incredible. He's I don't think I don't know. If, did anybody expect Shea to be this good? I mean, I know he averaged 19 as a sophomore when he got to the Thunder, um, but still, this dude is. Um, He's pretty insane. The The Thunder are just such a good team. They're going to be going forward. Um, and Chase Icy, he's a pretty clutch dude, too. He hit some tough-ass shots. Um, his game's smooth as well. Anyway, so then that leaves Luka Doncic, um, who is going stupid, also putting up ridiculous career numbers. I mean, this sounds so absurd at this point. Almost 35 points, 8.5 rebounds. Almost 10 assists. I mean, the dude's averaging nearly 35, 10, and 9 on 49 from the field, 38 from uh, from 3, 78 from the free throw line. It's insane. The team's also dealing with, like, a lot and um, and injuries and whatnot and roster. I mean, I've talked about Kyrie Irving's already not eligible for, for awards because he's missed 20 games. Um, I brought it up as, as a part of Tim Hardaway Jr.'s impact as a six-man. Um, and this, you know, you can definitely make the case that, like, uh, out of all these MVP candidates, like Luca has the least like help right now, um, or is doing like the most uh, solo carry job. Um, and if if he was like, and if the Mavs were any higher than like the eighth seed, I would probably say, hey, if the season ended right now, um, Luca has one of the better cases for uh, the MVP, um, maybe even the best uh, if we consider like you know Embiid might not even qualify. Um, it it might be him, but unfortunately. The team success is just not there. I don't need an MVP to be like necessarily like a top three seed. I know a lot of people do. A lot of people were angry. Jokic won in 2022, 2021. One of the, I think it was his second year MVP. He got it while the Nuggets were like the, um, were like the sixth seed. But it's like, bro, they would have been the 11th, 12th seed without him. Like, um, you know, it's, he brought them to like the sixth seed. That was in, that was a, remarkable feat in and of itself so uh i don't think it you necessarily has to like or i don't think like the mvp necessarily has to be like oh best player on the best team they're done like that's that's how you should choose it all the time um you know it's it's a year by year thing it's a case by case thing and you look at who's having like the most amazing impact on you know their for their team also it's worth noting that the mvp award is like very uh wishy-washy like what the uh rules are for it and like they totally change in the criteria and everybody's case is built on something different so ultimately it's like it's kind of hard to pick someone like everyone's gonna be happy by unless there is a clear-cut example um but luca i mean 35 points 10 assists nine rebounds on really good efficiency um on a team that's really hobbled right now so shout out to him um he would probably be like the runner-up but (laughs) um my pick is joel Embiid. Um, my pick is Joel Embiid. He has been through half of this season. The the he's having the best season. He's having the MVP season. He's not the best player in the world. I don't like when people say, "Oh, well, I mean, he's having the best season. He has to be the best player in the world." It's just like, no, you don't just suddenly become the best player in the world like uh, because of a twenty game stretch. You you prove it when it matters. Sorry, but he's fantastic. He's, I mean, it's not even a debate that Joel Embiid is the is the MVP. If this was the end of this season, and presuming that Joel Embiid will unfortunately not be eligible, then I would probably give the award to Giannis because of his team's success while also dealing with... I mean, the fact that the entire team's identity changed. I mean, 
you got to consider that for for Giannis and for the Bucks. I mean, they went from and I've talked about this before, but defense first team to an offense first team, um, losing this arguably the second most important player to their team in Drew Holiday. Um, the fact that he's maintained them as a, a contender, no doubt, a top team in the in their conference um, by like a good margin. Um, I think I think Giannis has to be given the love for that. So. Uh, in this very moment, it's Embiid and Giannis as the runner-up. At the end of the season, it might be Giannis and then Luca as the runner-up. Um, so anyways, that's my awards show. Uh, I'll run through them really quickly uh, one more time just so everybody remembers who uh, who we had. Um, most improved player of the year was Kobe White. Sixth man of the year was Nas Reed, but also shout-out to Tim Hardaway Jr. Um, coach of the year was Christopher... Finch of the Minnesota Timberwolves. Rookie of the year was Victor Wembanyama. Defensive player of the year was Rudy Gobert, Minnesota Timberwolves. And my MVP is Joel Embiid, of course. So, yeah, I hope you enjoyed that. You know, a lot, a lot of rambling and justification for players. Um, man, we're just we're we're just currently existing in such an awesome like moment in the NBA. There's so much talent. There's so many things to. Uh, to be appreciative of and awesome things, you know, there's, there's a bit of everything for everyone. Um, and I mean, you've just got, you've got dudes who can score everyone on the, on the floor can make dimes like magic Johnson and are averaging 35. I mean, it's just fun, man. Basketball is so fun. I love the NBA. Um, but anyway, that's, that's kind of it for this episode. I don't really have any departing notes or, uh, or, or a ramble. Um, whole thing's a ramble when they get to two hours long but uh yeah um big announcement actually i do have one big announcement is that uh hoops hour is now on spotify so shout out to uh to that um and if you would prefer to to consume it um like that you can now that's a really cool thing i'm very excited about that um and uh yeah i've just i've been uploading uh segments onto the channel and also shorts on tiktok and on youtube as well um so if you've been watching any of those um thank you i hope you enjoy seeing the podcast or the show in more bite-sized like uh formats kind of everywhere um and yeah uh that's gonna be it for this episode episode six of hoops hour thank you all so much for watching um happy february uh and uh, i'll see you guys later take care and uh that's it for me.